My friends, I think you can sense what a difficult thing it is to say goodbye, to bid someone farewell. This congregation has had to do it on at least two previous occasions. When Pastor Ord left the congregation, when Pastor Veldman left, right, you undoubtedly at that time experienced something of, of the emotion that uh, grips a person when you have to say goodbye, especially to a man who was so much used in this congregation and was so, uh, such a blessing to you yourself personally. That makes the, the, the tears, the pain of the separation all the greater. And that's where we now come in Paul's mi- third missionary journey. In Paul's third missionary journey, it's coming to a close. And really, the third missionary journey, and we can try to keep this straight in our minds, the third missionary journey is really bound up with the city of Ephesus. When you think of the third mission journey, you should think of the city of Ephesus. Those two should always be connected in your mind. Most of the third missionary journey took place, three years of it, in the city of Ephesus. And that's where we find ourselves then in this chapter this morning. So if you turn with me to Acts chapter 20 and verse 1, we can kind of see how we got here. Remember that in the previous chapter there was that huge riot? Remember in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the silversmith guild had stirred up the people to riot, Demetrius? They'd all gone to the theater in Ephesus, and, and finally that had been calmed down. And we read in verse 20, And after the uproar had ceased... So that's chapter 20 and verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, so that's that uproar that was taking place in the theater, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. Now on your outline there, I gave you a rough map of uh, Asia Minor there. I did not give you a map with all the different lines in it tracing where Paul went, because it's very confusing, actually. The third mission journey is not a single trip where Paul went from point A to point B. He went to a place, stayed there for a long time, visited another place, went back, and so it gets quite confusing. So if you can look with me then, uh, if you see in the very center of that map, Lydia, that's where the city of Ephesus was. Right on the coast of the Aegean Sea was the city of Ephesus. Well, now Paul leaves Ephesus, and it says he departed to go to Macedonia. Now, we don't know if he went by sea. Okay, that would have been north. So you see Macedonia if you find the, the uh, Greece, right? He could have gone up through Mysia, crossed the Hellespont there, which is that little tiny strip of water there between Thrace and Mysia. Hopefully you can follow me here. And then a left turn there brings you to Macedonia. Or he could have just gone straight across the Aegean Sea and gone to Macedonia. Again, Luke is giving us a very survey. He's... he's He's, he's uh, skipping over a lot of material, but he's, he's just giving us the highlights here. And in verse 2, and when he had gone through those districts, so what would those districts have been? Well, this would have been those cities of Philippi, right, our, our letter to the Philippians, and Thessalonica, our letter to the Thessalonians, and Berea. Paul didn't write a letter to Berea, but still, those would have been those cities in uh, Macedonia that undoubtedly Paul would have visited because there would have been churches in those cities that he had planted. So he gave them much exhortation and then he came to Greece. So now we're going south. He's in Macedonia and he's going south 
and he's coming to the country that's called Achaia, right? What today we know as the Peloponnesus, that little, or that, that very large, actually, peninsula, but joined by that tiny little land bridge. And on that land bridge, children, you probably recognize this by now, right? On that little land bridge between uh, Macedonia, the, the upper part of Greece, and the lower part of Greece, was the city of, do you remember? Corinth. Corinth. So undoubtedly, when Paul goes down into Greece, he revisits the city of Corinth. Did he also visit Athens again? Again, it's hard to know. More than likely, it seems he would have at least passed through that city. But remember, Paul was very irritated with Athens, right? He, he had labored there and he had preached there, but Athens was far too smart for the gospel, if I can put it that way, right? They were so wise in their own conceits and so wise in their own eyes that they didn't have time or any place in their minds for the gospel of Jesus, although there were some. I should mention that, right? Back in, in the previous time when he visited Athens, there were some converts from the city of Athens. But at any rate, certainly Paul would have visited Corinth. So he spent three months there, in verse 3. He discovered a plot as he was about to set sail for Syria. And uh, perhaps that plot was uh, to get on ship with Paul and throw him overboard. That would have been a, a pretty uh, clean way of executing Paul, right? Because... Uh, you could claim an accident had happened. So Paul decides not to go by sea, and he goes back up north through Macedonia again, and he's accompanied by these different people that you read in verse 4, and then in verse 5, he comes finally to Troas. So again, here he would have had to cross that little, uh, little strip of water between Thrace and Mysia, and the city of Troas is right there on the... Uh, tip on the, on the coast of Mycia. And he would come to Troas, and it's at Troas that he meets uh, Christians again, and he uh, and then we have this incident with Eutychus. In verse 7, they meet together to break bread, or to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're told that it was on the first day of the week. Uh, verse 7, and on the first day of the week, in verse 8, many lamps are burning, probably burning up a lot of the oxygen they would have used. And, uh, and, they were, and, and Paul says that he prolonged his message until midnight. So Paul uh, had a long sermon that night. And he prolonged his sermon until midnight, although that too is interesting because uh, no doubt the people to whom he was preaching had to work during the day, especially if they were from the lower classes of society. They would have had to work during the day. So Paul mercifully preaches to them uh, as long as he can. And Eutychus, of course, is overcome with sleep and weariness, and he falls out of the third floor, verse 9, and he's picked up dead, and he is brought back to life again by the power of the Spirit of God. Then in verse 13, we read that Paul set sail for Assos. So Assos would have been farther down so if Troas was there on Mycia, if you go south down the Aegean Sea, he's going south down the Aegean Sea, undoubtedly following the coastline. Assos is not on that map. But uh, at any rate, he comes to Mytilene. And from sailing there, he arrived the following day at Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. And here it's at Miletus that our story now picks up for this morning. Because Paul decides not to go to Ephesus because it will take up too much time. Again, he has so many friends there. He has such a close bond with that church. 
that he just can't, he doesn't have time to stop in the city of Ephesus. So he passes it by, stops at a place that's relatively close, and he sends for the elders of the church to come meet him there. And here, Paul is going to bid his farewell. And this is where then we have our sermon for this morning. And this morning, my friends, there's really not much to do by way of uh, expounding this farewell that Paul has to the Ephesian elders. So I'm just going to go right into my uh, application here and to take, uh, I believe it's five things from this uh, farewell and to see what we can learn and glean from it. Children, on your notes, you'll notice that I gave you a space. Uh, Which point is this? So I'm asking you there just to listen carefully. And the text that I've placed there, uh, maybe you can write then uh, in that blank beneath it the point that corresponds to that text. Hopefully that's clear to you. In that blank there, you can write the point, and I'll try to make that clear to you, that corresponds to the text that is above it. So let's begin then with the call. The call. In Paul's farewell to these Ephesian elders, you see that Paul is very clearly under the sense of some call. So in Acts 20 and verse 24, he writes, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course. Now already there he has a sense of call because he says, My course. In other words, that God has mapped out a way for him. That's the path that he is to walk. It's my course. But then very explicitly in the next phrase, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul is under a sense of call. He has been called by the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the king of the church to preach the gospel to the nations. That goes all the way back in Acts chapter 9 to when Paul was first converted and God called him to this work, to testify of the grace of God to Jew and Gentile. Now you may say this morning, well, that's wonderful for Paul, but we know Paul was unique in that regard. Well, if you look down with me at verse 28, you can see what Paul says to the elders to whom he is speaking. In verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And then here's the key phrase, Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So my friends, let's never just think that it was Paul who had a call. And we are just general Christians? No. Every elder in the church has a call, has been called by the Spirit of God, by the Lord Jesus Christ, to labor in the ministry. Well, you could say that's fine for Paul. Now I can see that it definitely applies to all the elders of the church, but does it apply to everybody in the church? And here, my friends, not so much in this text, but we know that in other verses of Scripture, All Christians are called the called. That is a name, that is a synonym for Christian or for believer, is the called. Because every Christian has a ministry from God. Why? Because every Christian has received a gift from God. I know you might not think of yourself as such a gifted person, but if you're a believer today, God has given you gifts, greater or smaller, but God has given Christians gifts. And if you have a gift, then you have a ministry. If you have a gift, then you have a call. You might say today, well, I, I, I mean, I don't work as a minister. You know, I can remember when I was a, 
a young man, a woman came up to me and she said, Chris, how are you going to serve God in your life? And I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't remember telling you that I was called, or, you know, going to be a minister or a missionary. I think I'm actually going to, at the time, I was thinking of going into medicine, I think, actually. And, uh, but this woman had a vision for life that I had not yet grasped, right? That mission, that vision for her was that every Christian, in no matter what calling you might be, has a call from God. My friends, I ask you this morning, are you a Christian? If you're a Christian gathered here this morning, then you are under God's call. And it is your responsibility and your privilege and your, your joy to determine what that call is and then to do it. And to do it with all your might and with all your strength. Now again, as I look about you, I, I see people, right? And I know your professions, right? I see the baker, I see the tree cutter, right? I see this person, I see all your, you know, the school teachers, the farmers, right? And I know you all have your specific vocation. But what does the word vocation mean? Well, it's just the Latin word for call. Now, my friends, I would submit to you this morning that that is a radically transforming way of looking at your life. That when you begin to think of your life, not as on Monday I have to get up and go do my job, or I have to punch into work, or I have to get out my tools and go about my business. No. On Monday morning, I wake up to do God's calling. Yes, my friends, that is a, a very different way of looking at our work than the, maybe the way we typically think of it. Certainly the way I thought of it when I was younger. And this woman asked me, Chris, how are you going to serve God? She wasn't asking me, Chris, when are you going to start going to seminary? When are you going to be a preacher? When are you going to be a missionary? No. She wasn't asking me that. She wanted to know in whatever thing I had chosen to do, whatever thing God had, uh, whatever path was set before me, how are you going to serve God in that calling? Now again, we just recently celebrated Reformation Day and how thankful we are to the Reformers, my friends, for bringing this idea, this thought back to life because it was very much a, a, a thing in the Roman Catholic times of the medieval church, in the medieval times, right, that the clergy had a calling from God. They served the Lord as priests or as bishops. But everybody else just had a normal, rather secular calling. But the reformers threw that out the window. Why? Because they believed in the scripture. That all Christians are the called. Martin Luther especially, you know he had such a colorful way of writing. right? And Martin Luther especially said that the maid who sits at home churning the milk is serving the God more than any of those priests down at the monastery with all their mumblings and grumblings. He had a very colorful way of writing, right? And when you read Luther, it's like you, you just want to meet him because he seemed to have such a rather humorous way of looking at things. But what he's saying is a profound truth. And we see it in our text here, that Paul saw that he was on a mission from Jesus Christ. And he reminds the elders that they also have been set apart by the Spirit of God to do their ministry. And if we look at the whole scripture, my friends, I can say to you, based on the word of God, that you have been set apart by God to serve him in whatever calling that may be. And look how comprehensive, look how deep-seated that calling is. <clears throat> look what Paul says in, in verse 24. But I do not consider my life 
of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course. So strongly was Paul under this sense of being called by God that he was ready even to put his life on a lower level than the call. God's call was here. And if that meant that he had to face hardship, then it was no, no difficulty in his mind what he should do. And we actually just saw that last week, didn't we? Because what did Paul do? He saw that riot, that mob of people in the theater at Ephesus, and he immediately said, well, I'll go and explain it to them. He was going to go right into their midst with a complete disregard for his own safety. And remember, it was the disciples, his friends, who had to kind of hold him back. Say, Paul, don't go there. You're going to get, you're going to get torn to pieces. But Paul is under such a sense of his calling that he, he, he's even, he doesn't even count his life as valuable in comparison to that calling. Now, that's a powerful thing, my friends. That's why I say this is such a transforming vision of life. Your life changes when you think of your work as a calling from God. I move then to my next point, which Paul gives us the message. What is the message that we as Christians bear in this world? What is the message? And here I go to verse 21. Verse 21, where Paul says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now before I say something about that, repentance and faith, I want to jump up to verse 20. Verse 20. Because here you notice, Paul says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. There's a sense here too, my friends, when we think of Paul's message, what he's explaining to the Ephesian elders as the message which he brought, that there's a sense of comprehensiveness here. That Paul thinks to himself that I didn't just bring you this or this, but I brought you everything that was profitable to you. The whole counsel of God, he'll say, in another place. He says uh, in verse... one of these verses he says the whole counsel of God verse verse 27 verse 27 Paul writes for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel the whole plan of God the whole thing Paul didn't hold back anything and this is important for us too to think as God's ministers in this world that we don't hold back anything from the message we don't pick and choose which parts are, are going to be appealing to people, which parts are not so appealing. We kind of put those on the shelf. We don't talk about them. No, Paul glories in the fact that he brought everything to them. I also find it interesting that he, he, says, he says as part of the message, the whole purpose or the whole plan of God. Now, my friends, that takes me back all the way into eternity past. When God had a plan, a covenant of salvation, that he made with Jesus Christ regarding his people. And now Paul glories to unveil that covenant mercy to people, to both Jew and Gentile. So at first I wanted to make that point, that Paul brings everything. He does not hold back anything of this message. But then we see that the message is, is very succinctly given us in verse 21 as twofold repentance and faith. Now if you look carefully at verse 21 with me, 
you'll notice that both of these, uh, both of these aspects, both of these uh, parts of Paul's ministry have a direction. A direction. And here I'm, I'm just going to quibble just a bit with our translation. It says repentance toward God and faith in, but really that preposition, in, is exactly the same preposition as toward previously. So it says repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They're the, exactly the same preposition there. But what I want to make clear to you this morning is that both of those things, repentance and faith, which are the two parts of Paul's message, have a direction. Now, what is the direction of repentance? It says, Paul says that repentance is toward God. Well, right away that gives us a clue then to what real repentance is. Repentance is something that we do before God. We come to God and we confess our guilt, we own our sin, we take responsibility for that guilt before God. We come to Him in repentance, in sorrow for our sin, and we confess that to Him. You'll remember that in the previous chapter when we talked about the repentance of the Ephesians, remember we said that there was a confessing, right? And then there was a, a owning of that sin, and then a burning of all the books of magic. Remember, that huge pile that they burned to ashes. Now in the same way we see that repentance, Paul says, is toward God. When we repent, we come to God and we confess our sin and hate that sin and desire to put it to death. But then faith, and we notice that faith is toward, faith also has a direction, faith is toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that teaches us something about what faith is then. That faith too has this object. We, we come to Christ when we believe. The act of faith by which we are saved is a coming to Jesus. It's a taking refuge in his sacrifice in order that the sins which we confess and own before God, that we deserve punishment on account of those sins, that we come to the Savior, we come to Jesus Christ because in him we find a substitutionary atonement. We find in him that he took the punishment which we deserve. And so we find forgiveness in him. Now this is the message of Paul. And my friends, this is to be our message. That in all the conversations that we have with people in this world, with all the things that we have to do in our daily life, in our calling, remember, we're going to see that work now as a calling from God. Our message, the only thing that really matters in our life, is repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things. And they fit together so perfectly, don't they? Repentance toward God, I think of that as reading the law, as we did already this morning. And it convicts us, it cuts us up. It shows us, it highlights, it magnifies our guilt before God. And it brings us to Jesus, because it's in him that we find the forgiveness. What a beautiful little illustration, my friends, of the gospel. Put so succinctly by Paul that even our children can understand it. Repentance toward God leaves us in a very bad place. Faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe I shouldn't put it that way. Repentance towards God could lead us in a very bad place. But when that repentance, when that sorrow, when that conviction drives us to Jesus, then we can know faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And in him we find forgiveness. A perfect illustration of the gospel. This is the good news of Paul. This is the message. 
I come then to the third point, the work. What is the work that Paul asked these Ephesians to do? And you'll notice that I've divided this up into two, point three and point four. Point three is the work, and this brings us to uh, verse 28. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves. So if you're taking notes this morning, the work in the first place is the work on ourselves. Be on guard for yourselves. Again, a slight quibble with the translation here. I would get rid of the word for. Guard yourself is what Paul is saying. here. Guard yourself. Just as in the next thing, the part two is guard the flock. But my friends, let us be clear on this, that all ministry, all God-honoring ministry begins with ourselves. Guard yourselves. I put two verses there, Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And then 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, this week I found it interesting that one of the men whom I admire so much in the ministry, Pastor Al Martin, he, he said that this text has been the most significant, the most influential text in his life in ministry. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself. Friends, this is something that we have to begin. This is where we have to begin. Keep a close watch on yourselves. That means when I stand here to preach a sermon, that sermon first has to be preached to myself. I have to embrace that message myself. And in the same way, when you go to stand on your pulpit, wherever that may be in this life, the work has to begin here. You have to first recognize your own heart, your own sin. And all along, that's a long process, my friends. All along through our ministry, we never can take the focus off ourselves. And by that, I mean that we have to set our own house in order. Uh, that may not sound right, it, it, does it, to have the focus on ourselves? But again, hear, my, hear, my under, hear what I'm trying to say here, is that we have to guard ourselves. We have to be at work on our own heart. Of course, it's so easy to see the faults and the, and the shortcomings of others. But my friends, we have to watch the progress of religion and of our own walk of faith in our own souls. Because the, the decline that comes in our own souls is so small, so imperceptible, and yet so very, very real, especially in those private areas of religion. We'd never think of stop coming to church, right? And yet in our own private religion, my friends, the religion in our own souls that's concealed from everyone else, religion can begin to grow cold. The practice of private prayer, the practice of private reading of Scripture and our devotional life that can slowly begin to shrink and to shrivel. And now Paul is exhorting the Ephesian elders, guard yourself. Guard yourself. Now I'm going to say more about this in, in tonight's sermon. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to drop this, this point for now. But this is such a critical point. Such a critical point that we, be, that we begin with 
our own selves, and that as we begin the work of the ministry, we minister to ourselves in our own hearts to make sure that we are on the right place with God before we begin to speak to others. So in the fourth place, the work that Paul calls these uh, Ephesian elders to do in regards to the flock. And here I'd like especially to focus on the verbs that are given us. So the first set of verbs that are given us are all verbs of speaking. Follow me here in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you. Declaring. Continuing in verse 20, anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. Drop down to verse 25. And now, I, and now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. And then in verse 27, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Do you hear those verbs, my friends? Declaring, teaching, testifying, testifying, preaching, declaring. This is the, this is the work that Paul sets these Ephesian elders upon. Now this is especially important, my friends, because as I said at the beginning of the message, we know that Luke is not giving us a comprehensive record of everything that Paul said to these Ephesian elders. That means that Luke, and please understand, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, right? Luke is, is choosing those things which are especially important. In fact, we could say that the Holy Spirit, working through and on the mind of Luke, is preserving for us in the canon of Scripture, in the book of Acts, as we have it here, those things that God wants the people in this community right here that I'm looking at this morning to hear. These are the verbs that the Holy Spirit has chosen to preserve for us. I'm sure that Paul said many things. I'm sure he said a great deal of things. We're told that when he was in Troas, he preached until midnight. And so I think it's even more powerful to us, my friends, that the, that the Spirit of God has given us those things that he wants us to focus on. And so it's not me in the pulpit today saying, now these are the important things. This is the Spirit of God preserving out of that long speech that Paul probably made. The Spirit of God, through Luke, preserving for us exactly those things which the Spirit of God would impress on your minds this morning in 2023. And so this is not my word. Declaring, teaching, testifying, preaching, and declaring. What does that mean for us today? Well, you know, I can't help but think that in our churches, especially in the Reformed churches, we put a great deal of emphasis on preaching, don't we? This pulpit's right smack in the center of this church, right? You don't see the altar in the front of this church, right? There's, there's, not, a, there's not anything else, but here stands the pulpit in the front of this church. And in this service, right, if you looked at the order of worship in this service, you would see that by far the bulk of the time is taking up with a sermon. Now, I don't preach until midnight, right? But by, by many standards, the sermon's quite long, isn't it, in our church? But when I read a passage like this, I don't really feel so inclined to apologize for that. Because I hear Paul saying, declaring, teaching, testifying, preaching, declaring. I'm kind of getting the, the message from Paul, and again, the Holy Spirit himself who inspired this record, that this is something that 
the Holy Spirit would have us to make a priority. And the children are saying, yeah, and after this service, we go down to our Sunday school and we get another 45 minutes of instruction in the, in the, in the Sunday school and catechism room. That's a lot of instruction to receive on a, on a Sunday morning, isn't it? But I think the Holy Spirit is pleased with it. The second set of verbs that I see here are verbs of, of guarding. It starts in, in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Verse 31 says, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day. Uh, also in verse 31, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. These are the verbs of guarding and, and shepherding, the, the task of a, in fact, that word uh, shepherding there is, is very, well, it's very, yeah, overseers to shepherd the church of God. So you have this idea of shepherding and, and here certainly that savage wolves are going to come in among the flock. So here I think very much you have a sense of guarding and especially with a focus on the truth that's preached and taught in that church. If preaching and testifying and declaring, if all those things are important, then Paul now wants to say, and it needs to be the truth. And you need, as elders in the church, to be on guard against that kind of thing. That no false teaching slowly ooze its way or find its way or sneak its way into the church. There needs to be a vigilance there. False teaching gives birth to all kinds of disaster in the church. In fact, false teaching is the seedbed, is the soil in which sin grows. Sin begins in our minds. When there's false teaching here, sin begins to form in our life. One sin that happens is uh, something certainly that Paul has warned against in the Ephesian church, and that it brings disunity. You remember, Paul says, uh, well, in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, remember, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus, even though he wrote it to the church in Corinth. He's very worried about disunity. He's very worried about parties and groups forming in the church. And what does he say here? In verse 30, he says, These savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. And that's what happens in churches. Now, this is just one of the things that could happen. But since it's mentioned here, I thought to bring it up, that there becomes disunity in the church, and parties begin to form. And one group follows this man, and another group follows that man. And these things ought not so to be. And on these things, the elders should be guarding and overseeing. Then one last set, uh, not a set, this is just one verb, but I notice in verse 35, Paul has emphasized, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must, and then here it is, help the weak. Help the weak. And there Paul, very interestingly, quotes an a expression of Jesus that, were, that, that is not in the Gospels. Isn't that interesting? There must have been a collection of sayings of Jesus that did not make it into the Gospels. And Paul quotes, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But you will not find that quote in the Gospels anywhere. So again, back in those days, Paul must have uh, known that this was a uh, quote that Jesus made, and he quotes it here. But at any rate, so this third verb then, 
helping the weak. And really, this, this is very much a part of the second set, guarding and overseeing and shepherding the flock. But now, not so much guarding the doctrinal truth, but helping the weak, reaching out that encouraging hand. And I hope, my friends, that we as a congregation would especially have an eye for the weak. We tend to pride ourselves on being a very strong people, right? And in the first place, we don't want to show to people that we're weak. I think we, we go a little too far in that, right? We don't like to be so vulnerable. We don't like to open ourselves up to that kind of uh, ministry. But let us as a congregation be on guard for those who need an encouraging word. And you know I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. In a big way, my friends, that's those people who are not present with us this morning. Those dear members of this flock that are now in the nursing homes, in the places of care, they cannot come to our church anymore because of old age. My friends, let me just ask you tonight or this morning, when was the last time that you took some time to stop in and to say hello to one of our seniors? They're there. They're there every day. They wake up in the morning. They eat their lunch. They go to bed at night so many times without ever seeing a human face. My friends, let's be more vigilant about that. As Paul admonishes us here, help the weak. That's not just for the minister to do. That's not just a, a task for the elders to do. That's a task for the whole congregation. And my friends, that we see that as a calling. That's not just me saying, now you people go visit the elders. No, this is a calling from God that we be a flock and that we all be shepherds to the weak and and i'm sure there's people here who at times need an encouraging word but in a special way those dear friends who once served here so faithfully right and you know that better than i do because you know these people i i don't remember them i've only seen them, ever seen them in the nursing homes but let's be a congregation that ministers to the weak and finally the reward the last verse here is the reward. What a happy verse it is to read when Paul says to these men, and now I commend you, in verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance. My friends, God has an inheritance laid up for every one of his faithful servants in this life. Do you think about that inheritance sometimes? Do you think, my friends, and all the weariness of ministry and all the work that we do from day to day and all the disappointments that we face. Remember I told you in the, in the past that a minister for Jesus Christ needs to have an infinite capacity for disappointment. That doesn't mean we shouldn't hope for great things, but it means that we need to be prepared to be disappointed in this life. But there is an inheritance to come. What's bound up in that word inheritance? It's such a beautiful word. It means in the first place that we are not yet enjoying it. It means it's there, but we've not yet entered into it. We've not yet taken possession of it. And in the second place, my friends, it means we are entitled to it. I know we don't like to think of that, right, of, of us being entitled to anything when we don't deserve anything. Well, you don't deserve anything. But God in his grace, God in his grace, right? That's what Paul says. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And that inheritance is a manifestation of God's unmerited favor. 
That means, my friends, in another country, in another realm that none of us have ever been to, there is an inheritance of unparalleled beauty and glory for every servant of God. And you own it. You know what I may say this morning? You have a key to it. You have a key to it. Now, you've not been there yet, but you've got a key. And there's an inheritance with your name on it for those who are faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, God will call you to take possession of that beautiful inheritance. You will enter into it. My friends, what a day will that be? Many of the people who sat in these seats have already entered into it. They've already known what we can only imagine and think of. But they experience it firsthand. And my friends, I just ask you to think this morning, in all the weariness of the work that we do here upon this life, and all the labors that we put our hands and our minds to do, what a day that will be when the door of our inheritance swings open for us. We don't like to think about death that way, maybe. But that's really what it is. When the door of that inheritance swings open before us, my friends, and we enter through it into the glory of the new Jerusalem. I can't explain that to you this morning, can I? I've not been there. We can read hints of it in Scripture. But the Scripture also says that no eye has seen, nor has any ear heard, nor has it even entered into the mind of man to conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. That's the inheritance, my friends. And that's our encouragement. That's our encouragement that when we leave this building, and when we wake up on a Monday morning, that we take up the call that God has laid upon us. We know the message. We know the work. And in our mind, we have one eye fixed on that inheritance. And that hope shall never make us ashamed. Maybe you can wake up this morning, or uh, Monday morning, my friends, and say to yourself, God has a place for me. God has a place for you in this world. But now I'm talking about God having a place for you in that other world. In that other country, which we shall come to in due time. And so let's not faint. Let's not be weary. Let's pick up the weary hands. And let's go about the work that God has called us to do. And let us hope for that glorious inheritance. Let us pray. Lord, what a glorious truth it is that you've given us this morning. A difficult work, a hard calling, a yoke that we have to carry in this life. But Lord, when we think of that inheritance, then we can say of a truth that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, help us to be faithful then while we labor in this world. Each one of these men here, Lord, and the women working in the home, or working outside of the home, I pray for each one of them. Lord, that you would encourage them and give them an eye to see the key that they hold in their hands to that glorious inheritance that one day shall spread out before them in all its beauty and glory. Oh God, we, we pray with all the church of all times and places, come, Lord Jesus, yea, come quickly. Lord, how we wish that our young people also would, would catch this vision that they too would see that this life and all the treasures and joys that are dangled before them by our culture, that they're all just worthless. Loss and dung, Paul has called them. But to know Jesus Christ in a saving way, 
and to have a sure and certain hope of entering into our inheritance. That's the real treasure. That's the life to live. Lord, please bless us then. And bind us together. Bring us back also this evening. Give us an hour of worship together. And may your name receive the honor and the glory from this time forth and forevermore. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn then to number 473 in the blue hymnal. We'll sing the four verses of God be with you till we meet again. All four verses of 473 in the blue hymnal.
blessed the Lord, ye saints below, who in his praise delight. By all his creatures let his name be honored and adored. Let all that breathe in praise unite to glorify the Lord. Amen. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.